BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Looking back to last year, 2021 continued the trend of increasing damage from weather-related disasters with 20 events totaling a billion dollars or more. While there weren't as many events as the record year of 2020, the actual damage amount was higher, giving another data point to the trend line demonstrating the heightened costliness and severity of these events. Steve Bowen, meteorologist and head of Catastrophe Insight at Aon, is here today to dive deeper into the data that is highlighting not only increasing financial impact of these disasters, but the increasing humanitarian toll as well. Steve, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you very much for having me again today. Yeah, we've yeah you've you're you've been around the block here on the Weather Geeks podcast. We love uh, to bring people back that have really insightful comments and thoughtfulness. Now, just right off the gate, did I pronounce your company correctly? Because I want to make sure I get that right. It is. Yeah, we I work for Aon. I'm the head of Catastrophe Insights, and uh, we're a global professional services firm. If we're being official in terms of what we actually do. Absolutely. And I, I want to dive into that. But before we do that, remind our, our listeners of how you became a weather geek. Sure. So my my story begins back when I was a kid. It's not overly unique to most meteorologists. I was seven or eight years old uh, living in South Bend, Indiana, and we had a weak tornado uh, touchdown, go through our neighborhood, did uh, quite a bit of damage. And I was just fascinated by the power of Mother Nature and that fascination has stuck with me to this day. It's taken me initially through a career in television before I, I hopped into the role uh, here at Aon in 2007. And so it's really a, a dream to be able to live and do my passion on a daily basis. And let me give you a little of Steve's background before we dive into the conversation. He has a master's degree in business analytics from the University of Notre Dame. And you heard him say he grew up in South Bend. I've actually been to South Bend. I came to the University of Georgia Notre Dame game a few years ago. So I had a chance to spend some time there. He has a bachelor's degree from my alma mater, uh, meteorology, Florida State University. So go Knowles. We've had a string of Florida State alum on the show. I promise listeners we don't have a Florida State bias, but in the last couple of um, uh, weeks, we've had a, some Florida State guests. He was a weather producer and meteorologist at WFTS Tampa and is now the managing director, uh, head of catastrophe inside at Aon. And he's been in that role for quite a while, actually, 2007 to the present. So, you, you kind of hinted at this a little bit, but before we get into sort of the weather and climate cost things, I want to know a little bit more about Aon. So just give give the Reader's Digest elevator speech on your company. Sure. So Aon is a, a massive global company that does a whole bunch of different things around insurance, consulting, health, retirement, really a whole bunch of different, different avenues. My specific areas really focusing on helping clients better understand risk as we continue to see the costs of natural hazards and climate change take on more importance, uh, especially on the regulatory side, governments and uh, other types of financial institutions are really pressing companies to start showing how they're taking these increased loss costs into accounts. Uh, the team that I lead, we really are diving into the hazard data, the loss data, 
tying in the socioeconomic impacts to really help tell a story of where we're continuing to see uh, losses evolve or risk is evolving and uh, start to identify some things that companies can do to, to try to better protect themselves. I want to read some numbers, and after I read them, I want you to react to them. Um, and this is uh, some data provided by our, our Weather Geeks team. Uh, there were a total of $343 billion in economic losses in 2021, $329 billion of which resulted from weather climate-related events, making last year the third costliest year on record. What are your initial thoughts when you hear that? Well, it's it's a continuation of what we've seen. I mean, we it's been an exhausting stretch over the last decade or two of these increasingly expensive events that are having very real humanitarian impacts. And I know the United States tends to drive a majority of these loss costs, but the reality is, is this is a global uh, phenomenon that, that's happening, and these 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 damage costs continue to go up. Uh, we know that. Uh, climate change in the realm of weather events is definitely having a more pronounced effect, uh, but it's also highlighting that we continue to see people that are moving into these really highly vulnerable locations, and it really uh, exposes some of the vulnerabilities that exist in our infrastructure and really hopefully is incentivizing people, whether that's at the government level or it's down to you know the individual homeowner to start taking steps forward to really try to uh, limit the potential impacts of these growing uh, costlier events. Well, you, you mentioned sort of moving into places of vulnerability. Uh, I, I don't think anyone would be surprised that in 2021, Hurricane Ida was the costliest event, I think at around $75 billion. But I think people might be surprised to know that at least in terms of the numbers I'm looking at, the second highest event in terms of damage costs was winter storms and the associated cold waves that swept across the country last February. And I think um, the Texas event and parts of the Southeast were there. And I think the estimates were around $24 billion in damage. Um, you know, in, in one case, you have a hurricane and you, you mentioned, you know, people do want to build and live on the coast. And so uh, there's inherent vulnerability. I mean, you, you, hurricanes are going to continue to happen. We've always had hurricanes naturally. Uh, let me remind people of that because we often get the, well, hurricanes always happen naturally or weather happens naturally. Indeed they do, but certainly some of the scientific literature suggests that uh, the intensity of them will increase and in, as our climate warm environment continues. Uh, but how are, are, are you in any way comfortable linking winter events to climate change, or is it just something that we have to talk about and understand as a part of the broader weather variability? Because I think there are some connections to things like the polar vortex, but how would you frame that conversation if you're talking to a client or to Congress, uh, a cold event and a hurricane? Yeah, I mean, I think on the on the winter weather component of all this, we, there's some emerging research that's coming out that does suggest that we're getting more warmth in the mid latitudes up into the into the poles and that's of course leading to more disruption of the polar vortex that sudden stratospheric warming i know we're amongst friends here so i can use really nerdy terms like that and that that disruption will lead to more of those instances of the pieces of the polar vortex dropping down to the south now there's not too much emerging research that says that that's happening with more frequency but the big takeaway of the 2021 event is that a it can happen and b if states are not prepared with their uh, electrical grid, the, the other types of infrastructure that are not built to withstand the severity and the longevity of cold snaps like that, or on the opposite extreme, extreme heat. You now that's really going to potentially lead to 
humanitarian impacts and resultant damage and see what we saw in Texas last year. Um, frozen pipes and homes that burst and that floods and it turns into a huge mess. So, you know, just highlighting to people that even though it may not be increasing on a frequency standpoint, the intensity of individual events may be changing. May be changing. And that shift is really causing a, a big spotlight to be shown on these areas that really need to be investing more because investing more upfront may be a big dollar sign, but in the long run, it's going to be saving way more money in the long term. There's been enough studies on return on investment that show you can get a five to one, 10 to one, even 15 to one in terms of dollar amounts uh, that you're going to be potentially saving. And the same thing goes in, goes into play with, with hurricane uh, as well. I mean, we, I think the big takeaway for me in terms of 2021 versus the 2020 Atlantic hurricane season is we actually saw many more storms make landfall in 2020, but it caused much less damage than we saw in 2021, which once again highlights where these storms are making landfall is, is really critical. Uh, but also, I think that for me, with Ida, we focus on the Gulf Coast and the impacts there, but we have to also talk about the inland impacts that it's not just the wind, it's the water component uh, that's going to be leading to significant damage as well. And of course, we saw what happened up in the Northeast uh, with you know tremendous amounts of, of, of rainfall and, and subsequent damage. So it's all around vulnerabilities. It's all trying to identify that you know we're really obsessed with frequency and how often things are occurring. But I think we need to be taking a step back and focusing more on behaviorally of how these events are occurring. And as they're becoming more intense, more impactful, we need to make sure that we're better prepared. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Steve Bowen of Aon. We're talking about extreme events, extreme weather events, cost and frequency and intensity. And, and yeah, I, I I don't I I said this the other night in the talk uh, in in my hometown, and I I just I don't think it resonated, but it's just all it's just jaw dropping to me when you mentioned Ida. And I think, you know, there was a a weather station in New York City that measured three inches of rainfall in an hour. That's ridiculous. I mean, I don't think that resonates with people. Maybe it doesn't sound like a lot, but that intensity of rain falling on a large city with a lot of impervious surfaces where you're not getting infiltration into the soil, it's running off. 
you know, that intensity of rain is, yeah, so you're right. The frequency, yeah, we might not see that event, uh, but because that level of intensity is there, it has, uh, it amplifies the impacts. And so I really appreciate that comment you made about intensity because even now people say, oh, we're going to global warming is going to cause more hurricanes, right? That's what people always say. And it's really more about the intensity that we expect. There may actually be less overall numbers, but when they happen, boy, they're going to be doozies. And so on average, on average. Now, of, of the 2021 losses, only 38% were covered by insurance, according to data that my team has put together. What are the, what are the reasons for that low rate and what are the implications of that? Well, it, quite simply, it means we have a lot of work to do uh, within our, the insurance industry in terms of growing the awareness, making insurance coverage more affordable. Uh, it's what we call the protection gap. So it's that portion of the economic loss, which is not covered by insurance. Now, the U.S. has the most mature insurance market in the world, uh, has majority of losses ended up being covered. But that's with a massive caveat is that the flood peril tends to be highly uninsured. Um, we continue to scream from the rooftops that if you check your standard homeowner policy, flood is not covered. So you are required to go to the federal government to purchase a separate uh, flood policy from the National Flood Insurance Program. Uh, and even there, it may not fully cover the, the cost of, of your damage because there's limits on what uh, uh, the, the policy is gonna be covering from a building structure standpoint and then also the indoor contents. But it at least offers an opportunity for you to have coverage in the event that some flood event occurs. So we have an event uh, say like Hurricane Harvey, for instance, where $30 billion of insured losses occurred, but the overall cost was $125 billion, which shows that there is a significant gap between that economic and the insured uh, loss. So U.S., again, we use that as, as the main example because that's the most mature insurance market, but there's still a lot of uh, progress that needs to be made on individual perils. And of course, flood is, is the main one. Um, now, when we step outside the U.S., then it becomes a bit more challenging, especially areas in, in say, Asia, uh, Africa, Latin America, where unfortunately insurance coverage is just not w widely available yet, or even worse, it may be available, but folks just can't afford it. So the insurance industry is really starting to do more work with uh, governmental bodies to try to develop low-cost uh, insurance pools or something. So if an event happens and the government's able to essentially distribute aid uh, to people to help get their uh, lives back in order, but we still have a very, very long ways to go. But I think here in the U.S., we really need to be focusing more and more on flood and recognizing just how costly it is and how much we need to do to make sure that people are getting that money in their pockets to be able to get their lives back in order. You know, this is interesting conversation talking with Steve Bowen. You know, in, in, in a, a, an episode that I taped earlier this morning with Dave Hondula, Arizona State, and, and actually the city of Phoenix's first heat officer, we were talking about the unsung nature of heat. And as you talk about flooding, I, I, it, it resonates for me as well, because, you know, we have the Saffir Simpson scale for hurricanes and we have the Fujita scale for tornadoes. And when these events are happening, you know, as well as I am, because you're active on Twitter, you know, when we have these big tornadoes or we have these big hurricanes approaching. It, there's a buzz. Uh, I think floods sometimes fall into that category with heat in that, you know, we, there's no sort of identifiable named index or scale. 
the same with heat. But yet we know that floods are probably the costliest extreme weather event in this country, and, and heat is the deadliest. And floods, I think it's right behind it, according to the National Weather Service data that I've seen. So um, do you have any thoughts on how we can improve overall messaging of these sort of non-tele, less telegenic weather events? Yeah, I mean, you're hitting on a really important topic, one that's really near and dear to my heart. And I try to promote this on on Twitter a lot is around the communication of risk. And we need to be doing a lot better of simplifying messaging and making sure that people are in the general public are understanding the risk. And I've done a lot of post damage surveys. And the number one thing I hear from people is I had no idea my house could flood. I had no idea my house could burn down. Uh, I had no idea that I was potentially at risk of being hit by a tornado. And as a scientist, it's really surprising to hear that because it's like, well, you live in a floodplain, you live in the forest, you know, you live in the central plains where we would expect tornadic activity. But that just shows that we have a massive knowledge gap at the, you know, at the individual homeowner level that we need to be bridging more. So in terms of flood specifically, I think a lot of it has to do with mapping and making tools available that, that people can actually type in their address and be able to see what a specific scenario may look like in terms of flood and how that could potentially inundate their home. And if they see that and they start, you know, translating that into, into dollars, then people may be a bit more incentivized to be able to, to start taking steps to do that. Now, the big challenge, of course, and especially this is when you bring in the climate change uh, effect, where if heavier precipitation events are going to be occurring, we know that unfortunately the most vulnerable people are at the highest risk of climate. And so what do we do with those folks that may not be able to afford uh, a specific policy or any type of, uh, you know, home improvements that they need to be making? So this is where I think we need to see more of this public-private partnerships to make sure that there's enough funding being made available for these really vulnerable communities and working at the local level with emergency managers who know their areas better than anybody else. Uh, so I, I think that a lot of it's just around the messaging, making funds available, using mapping that's really detailed because we have some population centers say, especially in Texas where you know we're, we're seeing just explosive population growth and land use changes. And as we know with water, it's always gonna find the path of least resistance. Uh, so what was on a map 10 years ago is gonna look nothing like it's going to today because water flows are gonna be changing. So a, a lot of this is just around communication and trying to work together to make sure we're hitting not just the people that can afford it, but also the people that have less means that they're also receiving the same potential access to funds to protect themselves. I mean, I have a question for you just off of what you just said. You're you're in the private sector. I'm in academia and we also have the federal sector as well. And then you have organizations like the AMS, NWA. Whose responsibility is it to, because we, we I agree with you, and I, I mean, Steve, by the way, is one of the best followers out there, and we'll get his Twitter handle a bit later, but I mean, we, you and I and a lot of us talk about these things, and we know what's needed, but how do we get there? I mean, what do we, I mean, what, in your opinion, who, who needs to take ownership? Is it national weather service? Is it some nonprofit? Is it a TV station? Is it a company? Who, who needs to do this? I think it's everybody. I think we all have a stake, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I have lost count of, of how many times I've spoken to an academic group or another private sector group or the federal government, and no one seems to know what everybody else is doing. And I think we need to be making sure that we're all aware and sitting down at the table collectively and figuring this out. 
I know NOAA back in 2011, they started, you know, the, the weather ready nation initiative, which has been fabulous in terms of making sure that people on their phones are getting access to these, these critical warnings. But I think we need to be doing a lot more. And there's so much great work being done, not just in the private sector, of course, academia, government, um, uh, there's the, the, we need to be talking together to, to try to figure this thing out. So I'm not, I'm not going to specifically pinpoint one group in terms of <laughs> who should be taking ownership. Smart man. <laughs> yeah, I've done, I've done this enough to know not to stick my foot in my mouth, but, uh, I, I would say that we really do need to be working together. And yeah. I think there's a lot that, that's being done. I, I will say just to quickly, uh, mention that in the private sector, we have started engaging with academics. We have a, a very, um, uh, public collaboration with Columbia University, working with Dr. Adam Sobel, uh, Chi Ying Lee, Susanna Camargo, Michael Tippett, and a lot of the fantastic folks there to really focus on tropical cyclone risk. Uh, so it's really exciting uh, to be able to, to do more and more of this type of engagement. I think that we need to be doing more of that, not just between the private sector and academia, but also with academia and governments and emergency managers and all these other really important parts of the puzzle. I want to really echo and sort of amplify that because I, I, though I host well, many of you that are listening, know me as the host of Weather Geeks. I mean, I'm a card carrying professor and scientist at the University of Georgia. And one of the sort of traditional ways that research is and, and partnership happens primarily been through federal agencies and academia. So I'm really excited to hear uh, about the, that partnership with academia and a private sector, because I think uh, in, in many ways, private sector has your ear closer to the ground and sort of knows what's needed. Um, now, I, I frame this conversation in terms of the U.S., but there's global weather risk as well. And you've talked about flooding in the U.S. being of particular importance, and you mentioned other places around the world. Uh, are there other extreme events that, you know, are more from a risk perspective or the business that you operate in? Are, are other places more at risk from hurricanes, drought, or does it just depend? I mean, I'm, I'm just curious about the distribution around the world and what, what worries you and insurance risks most in different places. Yeah, I, I would say you know, flood is certainly the big one. We've we saw in 2021 in in Central Europe uh, one of the costliest flood events on record. It was a 45 plus billion dollar event. Uh, it was uh, in terms of insured loss. It was the second costliest to the Thailand floods of 2011. Uh, so that that's one peril um, that continues to really cause a lot of concern, and that's in Europe. Asia, we, we see just significant monsoon floods that happen every year in India, China, Japan. Uh, Malaysia had a, a really one of their most expensive disasters ever in December of 2021. Uh, so that's one peril that's really a big focus. The other one, of course, is, is tropical cyclone. Uh, we've continued to see in the last four to five years uh, very intense typhoon activity. Now, this is another great discussion around frequency. We haven't seen actually a really explosive year of uh, Western Pacific typhoon uh, activity, but the storms that are developing have just been phenomenally uh, powerful and just explosive rapid intensification. Uh, but that's led to some pretty significant landfalls in Japan in recent years, which have led to historic levels of losses, not just on the economic side, but also for, for the insurance industry, which really, again, is just emphasizing that it may be a while between significant events, but if you're seeing a 20, 30 billion dollar event, that's very, very expensive for some of these areas that aren't used to seeing uh, those types of losses. And 
you know, and this is something that's not just non-U.S. It's also in the U.S. as well as the events happen. And then we seem to forget about it after a couple of weeks. But the reality on the ground is that the recovery period can take years for a lot of these communities. So uh, it, it's a real challenge in terms of making sure that we don't forget, but also in, in making sure that people are still getting the, uh, you know, the, the, the type of coverage and the, and the amount of money and just really the attention they need to be able to continue to, 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 to push forward. So I would say flood and tropical cyclone are the two big ones. If we're not talking about, if we're talking expanding beyond weather events, then I would also say earthquake. That, that's another really, really big uh, peril that we're always, uh, you know, a second away from a fault undergoing, you know, going under a, a really massive metropolitan area. Uh, so really, we're always on the lookout for everything because Mother Nature these days just seems like like she's pretty upset and pretty relentless. <laughs> yeah, you just made me think about this because I know we had one recently with the big underwater volcanic eruption. Where's tsunami? I mean, tsunami is not a weather phenomenon, although believe it or not, as a meteorologist, I'm sure you get this. People ask me about them all of the time. And I said, they're, you know, they're in the ocean and they're, you know, more oceanographic and geologic. But um, are tsunamis increasingly a part of your risk portfolio? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, especially after the, the Hoku event in Japan in 2011, that that set such a massive bar um, that really showed that that tsunami risk is is very real and can be very expensive. Yeah. You know, and one that that we continue to focus on a lot is actually up in Cascadia around Seattle and Vancouver. And most people don't realize that there is a greater potential of a much stronger magnitude earthquake occurring off the coast of Seattle than there is down in Southern California, for instance. And the way the tectonics and everything are set up there, you can actually get a pretty significant tsunami from, from an event up in Cascadia. So we're really concerned about that going one day, because if we're talking about geologic scale, we're actually way past due in terms of a big event occurring. So, um, yeah, tsunami risk is definitely part of our, our portfolio that, that we're studying and, and concerned about because we know, uh, you know, we have recent history in 2011. Uh, we had the, the Chile earthquake and then we had, of course, the December 2004 uh, Indonesia event, uh, which led to very, very real physical damage, but unfortunately, even worse, a significant loss of life. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm speaking with Steve Bowen, who is the head of Catastrophe Insight at Aon. 
that's 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 a really interesting and sort of you know I don't there are not many people that have that title in the world head of catastrophe insight just kind of let that marinate for a second but really important position and I'm not making light of it because um, these catastrophes affect lives and they affect property and in some cases disproportionately vulnerable marginalized communities uh, poor communities and so forth so I really appreciate. Steve, you coming on to talk about these things, you were talking about flooding and tropical cyclones as sort of two of the key extreme events globally. And in both of those events, we often refer to them as one in a hundred year events or one in 50 year events. What are your thoughts on that? How we communicate those? And do we need a better way that really communicates what you've been sort of saying throughout this podcast, which is the, the intensity factor more so than the frequency factor. But just give me your overall thought to you. I do know you think about communication quite a bit. Um, yeah, I, I just don't know that people understand that a hundred year flood, what it really means. And it doesn't mean that it just happens every hundred years, although it could. So do, just give me your overall thoughts. Well, you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think we do a lousy job explaining that. I mean, I think we, we need to stop saying one in a hundred year. We need to start talking in probabilities and say there's a 1% chance of this event occurring at any individual location in a given year. It's, it's, it's a much easier way to explain it because there's just too many people that say, well, I've had you know, two 100 year events uh, in the last three weeks. And it's like, yeah. well, okay, well, I mean, that's true, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it, it should have been another 100 years until it happened again. You just happen to be in a really low probability, high you know, uh, impact, uh, type of, of, of scenario. So we need to be talking more in probabilities to simplify the messaging. The other thing around flood, which seems to confuse a lot of people, is that people often assume that if you have a you know 1% or 1 in 100 year rainfall return period, that means that you're also seeing a 1 in 100 year flood event. Well, that's not necessarily true, that one does not correlate to the other. There's a lot of factors that come into play that, 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 that end up determining that. So, yes, I mean, statistics, as we know, are can be quite confusing to a lot of people, even those of us that feel like we deal with stats all the time. Um, but there, there just has to be a better way that we're explaining this to people so we're not uh, confounding what, what the messaging really is, is trying to say. And in terms of climate change, it gets even more confusing because we're talking about, you know, basically a sliding scale where something was a 1% probability 25 years ago, but today that actually might be a 1 in 75 year uh, you know, possibility. So it's just a, a lot of opportunity for miscommunication and somehow we need to simplify. And I think getting away from that one in 100 and just start talking about probabilities specifically might be a, a good first step. Yeah, I completely agree. And talking with Steve Bowen, I want to shift gears here for this last segment and talk a little bit about solution. I mean, we, we just saw in this country, a massive bipartisan infrastructure bill, uh, passed, um, Going forward, we I mean, we know the risk, we know the extreme weather events, we have some good idea of how they're changing and so forth. Um, from your lens, I mean, do we have to, I guess, build back better or do we have to rebuild or do we have to stop building in certain places? Do we have to fortify places that are already, I mean, or is it a basket of all of those? It's it's a little bit of everything. I mean, we we have the technology now to really precisely pinpoint the areas where risk is growing um, and knowing where we should and shouldn't be building. Now, the problem is, is that a lot of these high risk areas or growing risk areas already have people that live there. So the question becomes, what do we do? 
well, we know we're not going to kick people out of their homes. That's just not a, a realistic solution that's going to you know, be seen as a plausible solution forward. So we have to start educating. We have to start making funds available to ensuring that people that need to retrofit their homes that are there are going to be better prepared. Um, I'll give a bit of a plug for, for an organization called IBHS, which has done phenomenal work on the engineering front with multiple perils. Yes. Um, they, they've done a, just a terrific job for a number of years in identifying the types of uh, building construction, the types of, of uh, you know, quality materials that are going to be uh, very useful to withstand wildfire activity, uh, severe convective storm, especially hail, uh, hurricane, you know, all these different types of perils. And we've actually seen some really great success stories. And people are often surprised when we talk about, you know, these fortified homes, which are built uh, to meet this really high threshold uh, construction quality. The state of Alabama is actually leading on this front when it comes to, to hurricane preparedness, which shows that, you know, if there's a will, there's a way. And if, if you show people the right way, people are, are going to be interested in making sure that if they're in a hurricane prone area, for example, if they build the right way, they're at less risk, depending on the intensity of the event. And I think most people would want to sign up for that if it means that their home is, is going to be uh, standing when these storms are through. So um, it's not a simple solution. We know this is extremely complex because there's just so many homes and businesses that need, that need to be uh, retrofitted or in terms of future planning, making sure that, that they're being built the right way. Um, but I think groups like IBHS are, are really leading on this and we, we can be you know, leaning more on them uh, to be getting some ideas for, for reasonable solutions and hopefully cost effective solutions uh, so that everyone's going to have an opportunity to, to improve their home. And there's actually a slight Weather Geeks IBHS connection because lead weather producer for Weather Geeks, Sarah Dillingham, uh, who used to be a part of this effort at the Weather Channel, is now there at IBHS. So shout out to Sarah if she's listening. And thank you for all that you did for Weather Geeks. And I know that you're going to do there as well. As we draw to our close, Steve, where can people find you on Twitter or find more about Aeon and its activities and other uh, outlets as well? Sure. So my, my Twitter handle is Steve Bowen Weather XWX. Um, like I like you've mentioned a few times, I, I definitely try to stay active on there and put a lot of different things, not just for the U.S., but internationally as well. Just heads up of big events that are happening, trying to simplify some of the messaging so people get a better sense of what, um, you know, what they can be expecting, what perhaps we can be doing um to do and then my you know from aon we're, we're, we put out a whole host of various reports we actually released in january our 2021 weather climate and catastrophe insight report which really does a very deep dive of the previous year's weather and uh, natural catastrophe events but also really trying to focus in on specific topics around climate and uh, how it doesn't just affect the individual hazard that it's also these uh secondary and tertiary effects things like supply chain um, financial institutions, health, emergency managers, I mean, across the board. So um, just trying to really spread the word that uh, sometimes weather and climate risk is, is a bit broader and affects areas and different types of sectors that you may not have previously considered. So uh, we do a lot. We're a small team, but we're a very uh, productive team, I think. Yeah. And, if, and again, if, if you're listening right now and don't follow Steve, run to your phone or your computer and follow him because he's a really interesting follow on Twitter. Steve, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Beats podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we will talk to you the next time. <laughs>